Hey, this is Carol Lloyd, and welcome to Season 3 of Like a Sponge, all about high school. Yes, those mythic places where every teenager has the epic time of their life and carries that passion and identity into adulthood. But when we started to talk to people about their actual experience with this venerable American institution, this is more what we got. My high school years were a nightmare. It was easier as a student of color to say nothing than it was to stand up for what you believed in. We don't get any sleep and we're exhausted. Kids are anxious. It was boring. What's wrong with high school today is that it doesn't center joy. In other words... This idea that schools, as they function today, don't really work, isn't new. Educators have been banging their heads against the cold, hard facts for decades. Cue the exciting music that makes statistics a little more tolerable. At any given time, there are over 2 million high school dropouts. Over the last 20 years, the dropout rates have dropped, a lot. But experts believe this sometimes has more to do with schools loosening graduation requirements to up their numbers than real gains. Even current dropout rates show that lots of students are so disengaged in high school that they just stop going completely. And who drops out of school offers clues to who the system is and isn't working for. Black, Latinx, Native American students are far more likely to drop out compared to white and Asian students. The same goes for students from low-income communities. Then there are signs of trouble from the other end, the success stories. You know, those fortunate kids who graduate high school and then enroll in college. Well, nearly 60% of first-year college students are assigned to take remedial courses each year. These are classes that students have to pay for, but they can't get college credit for. A Center for American Progress report found that remedial education costs U.S. students $1.3 billion annually. And even for those kids who just want to get their high school diploma and get a job, well, the work world doesn't really look kindly on them. Just 5% of American adults think high school grads are ready for the workforce. The evidence is clear. High school has a problem. In the past couple of decades, education reformers have thrown money at the problem with mixed results. 20 years ago, the Gates Foundation launched its Small Schools Initiative to the tune of $2 billion to fund the breakup of big institutional high schools into smaller learning communities. A decade later, Bill Gates admitted that small schools, quote, are not the answer. Later research suggested that the initiative had actually improved outcomes at some of these schools. In 2015, XQ, a nonprofit, made redesigning high school the big focus. They gave away $10 million a pop to 10 innovative high schools, chartered a school bus to preach the gospel of redesigning high schools and travel across the country, and in 2017 did a one-hour takeover of the four major networks, ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC, with a star-studded exposition of the topic, with Tom Hanks, Viola Davis, Kelly Clarkson, Justin Timberlake, DJ Khaled, Jennifer Hudson, Cheryl Kuo, Yo-Yo Ma, MC Hammer. The idea was framed a little like a Sputnik project. 
raising the specter of America falling behind globally. Good evening, I'm David Muir. The American high school, for generations, it's been an essential stepping stone on the path to the American dream. Yet our high schools mired in outmoded rules and layers of bureaucracy just have not been able to keep pace. As a result, American high school students now graduate at lower rates than in many other countries. And rank 31st in math, 20th in language skills, and 19th in science as compared to their counterparts around the world. Here's the thing. Despite so many pockets of innovation, many schools are still playing from the same rule book. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression. That's from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, by the way. And meanwhile, today's high schoolers are living in a world of pain. We've lost over 600,000 lives to the pandemic and more die every day. We have year-round weather disasters as a result of climate change and an upsurge in violence, crime, and political unrest. Is it any wonder teen anxiety, depression, and suicidality are up at all-time highs? How we prepare the next generation is arguably more urgent than ever. But what's different now is that a lot of students are raising their voices. Political movements are being led by teenagers. I want to be able to live on this planet five years from now, and um, I want the world to be a more sustainable place. They're the leaders in the movement for climate justice. I want the world to know that the environmental crisis right now is a culmination of all human rights abuses. That's why it's so important. We need a global transformation if we're going to combat this problem. And on the front lines, speaking up for black lives. In the year 2020, as a black woman, I have been shown that this remains a land of no promise. As Americans, our nation's very leaders refuse to give us things that any person should have, equality and justice. Some students are even trying to bring equity to their high schools. Students at Rainier Beach High School in Seattle protested after the state misjudged their enrollment, and the school had to cut two AP teachers. A student spoke to King 5 News. It's kind of sad to see that I don't get the same opportunities as someone down the street. I don't get the same opportunities as someone um, across the across the, the city. It's It's pretty sad to see that I have to, I'm not going to be meeting graduation requirements. I have dreams too, and those dreams aren't being taken into account. But even though young people are leading the charge, the institution that is high school is, well, still traditional. So many things about it have been this way for generations, and this makes change difficult. So says North Carolina English teacher Haley Gearhart. I think tradition kind of reigns over change. Innovation is kind of silenced and um, pushed to the side. Why is the American high school the way it is? To understand that, we have to go back, way back. My name is Kyle Steele. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. Kyle Steele studies the history of education. He says high schools grew like crazy at the turn of the 20th century. In 1890, only 6% of 
of 14 to 17 year olds went to any form of high school whatsoever. So like nobody. So in 1890, we're at, we're at 6%, in, in 1931, we're at 51%, and then by 1960, almost, it's like 90%. And graduation rates are um, above 50% and, and only get higher and higher. And with that growth came a need to organize. The, the school reports from the early 1900s are fascinating because the principals start to become like these like you know, executives of massive corporations. And their job? Create order out of what would be chaos. If you're going to have kids, you know, if you're going to have thousands of kids on your property all day, you're going to need to build fences, you're going to need bell systems, you need to put in lockers. Like, where do you store your bike? What happens if you get hurt? Uh, who do you call if you need to miss a day? We're certainly creating what, what I say is a mass institution. That was the topic of his first book, Making a Mass Institution, Indianapolis and the American High School. Using the Indianapolis school system as a model, he showed how high schools developed into entities that worked together with other mass institutions of the time, like factories and prisons. And that model stuck. It's been remarkably resilient. Like since we started having public schools, young people sit in rows and look up to the teacher that's at the front of the room. Sound familiar? In a lot of classrooms, kids are still sitting in rows of desks, staring at the teachers who are lecturing in front of the room, pouring information into kids' brains. Paulette Habash graduated from a traditional high school last year. And what he was asked to do in school, he says, it felt largely irrelevant and pointless. So I'm like, you want me to memorize these 50 words? I'm going to forget it in a week. Learning that doesn't stick. Hollett isn't alone in observing this trademark experience of American high schools. A lot of experts have the exact same concern. I'm Jal Mehta, a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Jal Mehta has made his career looking at what is happening inside our classrooms, with the ultimate aim of figuring out what it would take to improve our K-12 schools, to actually prepare kids for the world of work and life. This led him to the study of something called deeper learning. If that sounds super squishy, I get it. But Jal has an analogy that brings it to life. If you've ever listened to the NPR show Car Talk, uh, and the person calls in and says, you know, my car squeaks, and they say, does it happen more when it rains or more when you're on the highway or more uh, in the summer? You're sort of watching a conversation between someone who has shallow learning and can only see the symptoms and someone who has deeper learning and can, you know, has a bunch of theories about the underlying mechanisms. So that's the kind of most basic way of, um, of thinking about it. In other words, it's the ability to problem solve, to be creative, to use skills and knowledge in wildly different contexts. Unfortunately, Joel says that deeper learning just isn't happening in a lot of today's high schools. Why? Well, first, young people aren't being asked to engage with the subject matter in ways that are mentally challenging. That's not just Joel's opinion. In the largest ever videotaped study of classrooms by the Gates Foundation, researchers found that what students were asked to do was basic. About 80% of the tasks across the 
thousands of classrooms that they looked at were in the lower part of the um, taxonomies in terms of the tasks they were being asked as students to do. He's talking about Bloom's taxonomy, a system that categorizes all the different ways we learn. Rote memorization, recalling facts, that's low-level stuff. You can even do it and not understand what you're memorizing. On the other end of the scale are activities like analyzing, evaluating, creating new ideas or things from what you've learned. Those require deeper knowledge and engagement from students. Jal's research took him on a journey through many different types of high schools, which culminated in a book with Sarah Fine called In Search of Deeper Learning. And during this search, he saw a lot of this rote learning. But he also saw exceptions, like these young people at a school that focused on project-based learning. Students at a project-based school were working on something called the California Innocence Project. You may have heard of it. It's an organization that helps wrongfully convicted inmates on death row review and potentially overturn their cases. Uh, the problem is that there are many more people who want to uh, engage the California Innocence Project services because we have one of the largest carceral states in the world. And uh, then there are uh, lawyers who can do it. And so they essentially like trained the students to read the letters and make recommendations as to which cases they should take up. And so then when we interviewed the students, they said, like, we felt like we were holding people's lives in our hands. And thus, we really wanted to work on the, on the project. Memorizing 50 words? Mm, no thanks. But making a difference, a life or death difference for a fellow human? Suddenly, young people are interested. Jal says in most high schools, that kind of relevant project is the exception rather than the rule. What's behind this reversion to rote learning? Jal says too often schools infantilize and underestimate students. It's one of the key things that schools misunderstand about teenagers. The depths of their curiosity are just bursting out of them if you know how to access it. A, um, a wise school leader once said to me, if you ask students about their interests, they'll say like basketball and video games. But if you ask them about their questions, they'll say things like, how is the world going to end? Or why do good people do bad things? Or why is love so painful? Or things like that. And so if you start with their questions, there are always, there always will be questions and wonderings. And that always can lead to things that might be more uh, promising. This idea that high schools are spoon-feeding kids shallow learning is part and parcel of this mass institution. The institution needs standardization to function. And according to a lot of educators we spoke to, this idea of cookie-cutter experiences may have been useful in the 19th century, but it's been taken too far. It's like schools are all designed for one type of kid, the average kid. Traditional school, everybody's doing the same thing at the same time, and students who, you know, can really do things on their own have to wait, or the kids who need more time don't get that time. So it doesn't really respect the individual. The problems with traditional high schools is they think there is an average. An average kid who has average capabilities to learn math, reading, biology. So many high schools are geared towards this kid. The problem? 
this kid isn't real. So much of what we take for granted in society is that it is built on the idea that the average person exists. That's Todd Rose, professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and the founder of the think tank Populous. In his book, The End of Average, he shows how we've designed our entire society around this fabrication. As individuals, we have strengths and weaknesses, but we do not conform to norms. And in education, this idea can be particularly inaccurate. We use things like developmentally appropriate textbooks, which just means like for a 10th grader, what does the 10th grader know? How well do they read, right? What things might be interested? We design it that way, right? Problem is, there is no average 10th grader. Another average in schools? Time. The time it takes to say, take a test, to complete an assignment, to demonstrate learning. That schools to this day require all students to do all things according to the same time frame can be traced back to Edward Thorndike, the father of educational psychology. He assumed that there was a really, really strong correlation between speed of learning and ability, right? And we still think this. So they were trying to decide, well, how much time do we give people to learn? And his view is like, people are universally fast, universally slow, and that's the same as being smart. So he felt like, well, let's just peg it to the average time that it takes people to finish because yeah, the, the really smart kids might be a little bored, but that we can deal with that. But the, the slow kids aren't smart enough to take advantage of more time anyway. So what's the point? And what we found, and this is this is one of the most rock solid sort of empirical insights over the last 20 years, there is absolutely no correlation between speed and ability. None. In short, Thorndike was dead wrong. Research suggests that learning things slowly actually enables the brain to retain that knowledge. That's why cramming, for instance, doesn't work. Thorndike's assumption that speed and ability were correlated lives out today. Students who need extra time on a test, well, they have to formally request it through an individualized education plan. They can't just get it. And like a lot of things in our school system, this disadvantages kids without resources. Because in order to get an individualized education plan, you have to be diagnosed. And so parents with money pay thousands of dollars to get their children diagnosed so they can get extra time on tests, while students from poorer families have to depend on the public school system to do that evaluation piece. And if they don't get evaluated and they aren't diagnosed with a learning disability, then they have to learn exactly at the same standardized pace or get held back. And research shows that holding kids back a grade has terrible outcomes. Finally, kids who do learn quickly, they're bored to tears, waiting for others to catch up. What's significant about this is that with the use of personalized technology and differentiation in learning, it doesn't have to be this way. And, and the thing is, is we don't have to anymore. That's the frustrating thing, right? It's literally, it's not a limit of technology. It's not a limit of know-how. It's we're trapped by the assumptions we've made. Perhaps that's the best way to sum up the problem with high school. It's trapped by assumptions. Assumptions about race, about gender, about every frickin' individual child. 
assumptions that have been proven wrong. So why are we still using them? Young people may be leading the way for change, pushing for climate and racial justice, and trying to change their communities from inside out. But when it comes to how they're faring in high schools around the country, well, the kids aren't all right. In the past year, we've talked to dozens of students, recent graduates, teachers, principals, counselors, parents, experts in the field of education, and asked them one simple question. What's wrong with high school as it is today? Here's a sample of what we heard. First, what young people are learning doesn't feel relevant. I didn't see a path beyond what I was doing from day to day. I didn't see why it was important. They would assign homework that usually didn't even make sense to be assigned. My high school experience didn't prepare me for what my next step would be and did a very poor job of actually even framing the question. High schools are geared towards kids who are emotionally stable every day. I found it overwhelming to be in a classroom with 30 kids and everyone is different and everyone has different needs. It's geared towards students who can come in and do what they're asked to do and keep their shit together for eight hours a day. Schools are hotbeds of anxiety, stress, and competition. There was definitely a lot of pressure to compete with other students and that created a pretty negative environment. Students are told what to do. The problem with traditional high school is you are told what you are going to study, how you are going to study it, and the only measure of your success is a percentage on a piece of paper. We're still kind of lecturing students by saying, okay, you need to sit in your seat, you have to be quiet, don't look left and right, look straight, and just focus. And evaluated narrowly. Students don't care what they're learning. They don't, they're studying not to learn, just to prepare for a test. High schools are supposed to be engines of equal opportunity, but they often replicate the same inequities in society at large. For one, they often center one dominating narrative. The issue within schools is, is we're whitewashing the history. We're not telling kids the truth. The black people that I saw in the curriculum were, you know, enslaved people uh, for the most part. Um, like no sort of asset-based framing of, of the black experience, um, if it was referred to at all. And all too often, marginalized families get left out. I don't know if anyone ever spoke to my mom from the school uh, for any reason, unless I was in trouble. So I felt like as a kid coming from a low-income background, um, I was sort of on my own to just sort of figure it out, like my, my mom and me. Finally, it's not just hard for students, but for teachers. You have one teacher that's trying to cater to everyone, and this, this teacher also has a story that they're coming in with from home. And so they're coming in with their own baggage. You have all these kids coming in with baggage and there's not a lot of support. So you say, what's the good news? Well, there are a ton of educators and a lot of schools out there that are actually thriving in spite of the assumptions made so many years ago. In the course of this season, we'll take you to seven different school communities. Each of these schools are trying to solve different issues in the modern American high school. 
Some are crazy labs of innovation. Others are old-school traditional academies that are daring to change. We'll travel to Texas, North Carolina, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Rhode Island. We'll talk to teachers, parents, education experts, and of course, the kids experiencing these schools. And so, I hope you'll join us. One note before we leave. It's easy to fall prey to what so many have succumbed to in the past. And here, I'm going to bust out an obscure $5 word, monocausotaxophilia, the love of single causes that explain everything. It's an epidemic in education. Looking for that silver bullet. Small schools, data-driven instruction, standards, test-based accountability, magnets, charters, STEM, STEAM, and on and on and on. Here's the truth. Formal education of the young human brain is in its infancy. It's obvious there isn't one simple problem and there isn't one simple solution. So we're proceeding with the humble realization that critiquing from the outside is easy. But we know that working in high schools and transforming them isn't easy. This podcast is part of a project called Transforming High School. In the last two years, we've poured ourselves into reporting all about high schools across America that's resulted in 30-plus articles, 12-plus videos, tools in English and Spanish for parents and educators. So check it out at greatschools.org slash transforminghighschool. Like a Sponge is a production of Great Schools and was made by Jessica Yarmosky and me, Carol Lloyd. Our audio engineer is Christopher Ferreira. Editorial support from Jessica Kelman. Special thanks to Kaylee Gearhart, Nancy Diaz, Kyle Steele, Todd Rose, Jal Mehta, Hala Habash, Rosanna Burgess, Eva Jean Charles, and Dennis Litke. We also want to thank Transcend Education and Springpoint Schools. This season is made possible by a generous grant from the Barr Family Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation of New York. And finally, we'd really appreciate a review wherever you get your podcasts.